Section 49 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombal. Homicide, Part 26, The Brantley-Eskridge Romance, Part 2. Another witness, produced and examined on the part of the defendant in the suit, says he is related to John H. Brantley, deponent's father and Brantley's mother, having been brother and sister. Deponent learned from another relative that John H. Brantley was in Mississippi, and that a letter addressed to Dr. Murdoch at Squawkaluck, Mississippi, would reach him. It was a common report in Selma that Eskridge and Mrs. Brantley were living in adulterous intimacy, and that they frequently occupied a room in the south end of what was once known as the Weaver Carriage House. Deponents saw Eskridge going into and coming out of that room and noticed that he habitually locked the door when he came out. Witness wrote a note to Mrs. Brantley in the fall of 1870 and told her that he knew of her course of conduct and that he intended to write her husband, informing him of what she was doing. He folded this note and pushed it through the keyhole of the door of the room in the carriage house at a time when Mrs. Brantley and Eskridge were in the room. Afterwards, he did write to Brantley and told him in the letter of the improper intercourse between his wife and Eskridge, as reported by common rumor, and directed the letter to Dr. Murdoch, Squawkaluck, Mississippi. Soon after this witness met Eskridge, who called to him and said, I understand you have made some threats against me. Witness replied to him, I have not, but as Brantley has killed one man in the dark, he can kill another in the same way. Upon receipt of the letter in question, Brantley determined to see his wife at all hazards. It appears from the evidence of Adeline, a house servant of Mrs. Brantley, that Brantley came home one Friday night after dusk. Mrs. Brantley was not at home. She had left her house that day in Eskridge's carriage, saying to witness she was going to town. Eskridge was not with her. His waiting boy drove the carriage. On Mr. Brantley's unexpected arrival, witness prepared supper for him. He immediately inquired for his wife, and witness told him that Miss Minerva had left home that day, saying she was going to Selma. He then asked when she was coming back. Witness told him she did not know. He said he very much wanted to see his wife, and that he had come a long way for that purpose. He remained at the house during Friday night and all day Saturday, and on his expressing anxiety to remain undiscovered, witness carefully kept the door shut and allowed no one to see him except Albert Sevier the brother of his wife. In response to his wishes, Albert went after his wife, but he returned in due time with the intelligence that Mrs. Brantley would not come, that she was afraid to come. 
Mr. Brantley went away sometime during Saturday night. His wife returned home in the course of the following week, in company with Mr. Eskridge. These facts and various others, which were elicited during the trial, were corroborated by another colored house servant, named Hannah. Brantley was devotedly attached to his wife, and whatever suspicions may have been aroused in his mind towards the latter part of 1870, it is certain that he was wholly blinded to her misconduct during the earlier portion of that year. At that time, he appears to have placed unbounded confidence in his wife's friend, Eskridge, who tended his assistance in numerous little matters pertaining to the family feud, and he empowered Eskridge to execute, as attorney, some important trusts. His fond and loving wife continued to send him letters, overflowing with affection and sympathy for him in his exile. She also supplied him with money from her limited resources. From among the numerous letters produced in the course of the trial, the following may serve as a specimen, showing with what readiness Mrs. Brantley could use her pen. Usually her letters are exceedingly lengthy, and therefore only extracts therefrom are here given. My darling husband, I have been quite ill since I returned home, but am improving, yet suffering greatly from an overdose of quinine. You don't know how dreadfully quinine affects me. I am determined never to take another dose if I know it. I was like a crazy person. I long for the time to come when I will be able to sell out here and leave this hateful country forever. I am growing to hate this place and people more and more every day. They have no sympathy for anyone that has no money and is in trouble, but seem to do everything they can to put one down. We have not a real true friend here. I am resolved to sell out next winter and move to some other country, so you may be on the lookout for a home for me. What is life to you and me but a burden in the way we have to live? for no one cares for us. If we expect any happiness in the future, we must find it within ourselves, to try and make each other happy. It makes me miserable to think what a lonely life you have to live, and I am determined to share your future with you after this summer, come what may. For, after all, my darling, a man's truest and best friend is his wife. And I can say truly that I am the truest and best friend you have on earth. If the whole world forsakes you, I will cling ever the closer to you. All my acts and efforts are for you and your happiness. And you can ever rest assured, my dear husband, that in me you have one faithful and devoted friend who will ever be ready to make any sacrifice for you. My life is a sad one with nothing but trouble and sorrow, and I have so much to discourage and dishearten me. Yet amidst it all, I feel it cannot last so always, that the time will come when I can have some rest from the sorrows and troubles of this life. And it is this cheerful hope that sustains and supports my drooping heart amidst all our afflictions. I am resolved never to give up in despair, but will fight it out like a brave soldier if I die at my post. 
I will send you some clothes or the money, if I can get any, whatever you wish. With much love, your devoted wife, M.S.B. With all her alleged sentimentality and her complete surrender to a blind infatuation, Mrs. Brantley appears to have been of a shrewd business turn of mind. At that time, the agricultural interest of the neighborhood was productive of very little ready money, and her cash income was by no means adequate to her wants. Her friend Eskridge was always impecunious, and so they put their heads together to contrive a scheme for supplying themselves with money. Their attention was finally drawn to the practicalities of life insurance as a means through which they might further their purposes. An attorney at law residing in Selma, being examined on the part of the defendant insurance company, deposed that he had a lengthy conversation with Eskridge on the subject of life insurance early in the year 1870. Eskridge came into deponent's office and began a conversation on life insurance generally. After talking on this subject for a while, he asked if a life insurance company could be made to pay a policy upon the life of a fugitive from justice which was taken out while he was hiding from the law and was afterwards caught and hung. Deponent told him that if the fact that he was a fugitive from justice was concealed from the company, they would not be bound to pay, but that if the company took the risk knowing all the facts, in Deponent's opinion, it would be bound. He then said he was trying to get a policy on the life of John H. Brantley for the benefit of Brantley's wife. He inquired how to obtain the application and how to comply with the requisite forms. He said at that time Brantley was in Mississippi, concealing himself from an indictment for murder. Having formed a definite plan of operation, Eskridge set about obtaining insurance on the life of Brantley for the benefit of Brantley's wife. In doing this, he seems to have disregarded the advice of his attorney, touching the concealment of facts. An application for $10,000 insurance in the Life Association of America was made, dated April 25, 1870. This application was forwarded to the head office of that company, May 26th. The policy in return reached Selma June 14th. But as Eskridge could not then obtain the money, the first premium was not paid and policy delivered until June 30th. It appears in evidence that Eskridge applied for a loan to a personal friend, a gentleman with whom he had been associated in business formerly, who, being examined on the part of the defendant, deposed and said, Eskridge came to my office and stated to me that Mrs. Minerva S. Brantley had been over to Mississippi and had had her husband sign an application to have his life insured that the application had been approved and the policy was now ready for delivery as soon as the premium was paid. He further stated that Mrs. Brantley was exceedingly anxious to obtain the policy on the life of her husband because he was a man of such habits that his life was uncertain and it was absolutely essential that the premium should be paid at once. 
that Mrs. Brantley had made application to her merchants for money to pay the premium, and they had refused to advance it to her, that he, Eskridge, had come to me to get me to advance a sufficient amount of money to pay the premium for Mrs. Brantley. I refused at first to advance the money. On a second application by him for the money, he having offered additional security and binding himself personally to see it paid, I advanced the money to him. Subsequently, to the time of obtaining the life policy, Mrs. Brantley and Eskridge called at the Selma office of the Travelers Insurance Company for the purpose of obtaining an accident policy upon John H. Brantley. Upon making known their wish, they were furnished by the agent with a blank form of application and with the usual instructions. Some days afterward, they both called again at the agent's office and presented the application duly filled out and signed by Brantley. On the same day, August 25, 1870, an accident policy in the sum of $10,000 was written, but it was not delivered until two days afterwards when Mrs. Brantley returned to the agent's office, paid the premium, and obtained the policy under which the suit was brought. Eskridge had now secured $20,000 insurance upon the life of Brantley, so that in the event of his death by violence, his disconsolate widow would be furnished with material aid and comfort. About this time, Mrs. Brantley addressed the following letter to her husband. At home, August 14th. My darling husband, I have received several letters from you and regret that you seem to attribute my not writing to indifference. But let me assure you that it is not true. I have been waiting for the last week to see General Morgan. A few days after you left, he went to see his family, and not being well when he left, I expect he is sick, as he has not returned as yet. I cannot get any money until he returns. I am exceedingly anxious to see you, and will certainly come if I can get the money. I am delighted to learn that you are so pleasantly situated, and that you are with kind friends. I felt so anxious about you for fear that you would give way to gloomy feelings and low spirits. I hope that you will be cheerful, although it is awful to be separated in this way. I hope that the worst is over, and that soon we will be united again. I feel so thankful that you escaped in the way you did, and that it was no worse. Everybody thinks you are cleared for good. A Negro man who belonged to Griffin was caught, and he confessed that he had killed five men in the swamp. He said he did not know their names. Everybody believes that he was the one who killed all those who were murdered in the swamp. We are well. My health is improving. No cotton worms yet. No news. I will write just as soon as I have seen Morgan. I will let you know if I can come. You know that I will come if I can for you are the dearest object of life to me, and the only one I love and think most of, and would rather be with. Write me often, and believe me, your devoted wife, M.S.B. It will be observed that this devoted wife no longer alarms her husband with fears of his arrest, 
and no longer advises his flight to a place of greater seclusion and less danger. The occasion for this change in the tone of her letters may be accounted for in the evidence of the state's attorney, who was examined on the part of the defendant. In his evidence in the suit, he says, I began to act as solicitor in September 1869 and have been acting ever since. During that time, there was pending against John H. Brantley in the Circuit Court of Dallas County an indictment for the murder of one Howard. Joseph N. Eskridge called at my office to see me, the subject of his conversation being the laying of plans for the arrest of Brantley. He gave me the address of the brother and the brother-in-law of the man Howard, for the murder of whom Brantley was indicted, and asked me to write to them, to know if one or the other of them would meet a friend in Meridian, Mississippi. He cautioned me not to mention his name to them, but asked them to meet a friend there, and he told me that he would be that friend. He told me to tell them to name the day in the hotel at which this friend should meet them, and that this friend would give them the information and assist them in the means to arrest Brantley. And he told me that when they arrested him and brought him here, he, Eskridge, would give me the name of a witness that would hang him. I wrote the letters as requested and made the appointment, which Howard's brother and brother-in-law failed to keep on account of sickness, as they subsequently informed me. When Eskridge left me at the end of this interview, he went directly across the street from my office to Mrs. Minerva S. Brantley, who was standing in an alley on the opposite side of the street, walking about, apparently waiting for someone. When Eskridge came up to her, he commenced talking, without any salutation, and they walked off down the alley together, still talking to each other. They walked into a vacant lot on the side of this alley to Mrs. Brantley's carriage and drove off in the direction of Mrs. Brantley's house. On another occasion after this, Eskridge came to see me at my office when I informed him of the failure of the appointment with Howard's brother and brother-in-law. This information was given reply to Eskridge's question asking me why those fellows had not come to time. He asked me to arrange another appointment with the same men for the same purpose. When he left my office, I watched him because of having observed his going to Mrs. Brantley at the end of the previous interview. On this occasion, he went directly to the street corner diagonally across from my office, where he met Mrs. Brantley. About 15 minutes afterwards, he rode out of town in a carriage with Mrs. Brantley in the direction of Mrs. Brantley's home. On another occasion after this, he came to my office and conversed with me on the subject of arresting Brantley, and when he left the office, he went straight down the street and met Mrs. Brantley on the street. They commenced talking, without any salutation, and walked off down the street together. Pending these arrangements for the arrest of Brantley, Eskridge came to my office frequently to inquire how I was getting along with the arrangements, and whenever he saw me on the streets, he would speak to me about it. He manifested great anxiety to have Brantley arrested by the relatives of Howard 
and appeared to be very restless and uneasy about it. He frequently cautioned me not to let it be known that he had anything to do with the arrest of Brantley or that he was giving information about it. On one occasion, Eskridge told me that there was only one other person who knew that he had anything to do with getting up information and making arrangements for the arrest of Brantley. The second appointment at Meridian failed also. Eskridge came a short time afterwards and inquired why the brother and brother-in-law of Howard had not kept their appointment at Meridian. This was a short time before the death of Brantley. It is evident that Eskridge did not seek to have Brantley arrested merely and brought to justice, for that could have been effected quite as easily without as with the assistance of the brother or brother-in-law of the murdered Howard. On the contrary, it is apparent that his object was to have the arrest made by or in the presence of the Howard relatives, and under such circumstances as would render it probable that Brantley would offer resistance, which would afford a pretext for shooting him. Such an act would enable the Howards to revenge, with safety to themselves, the murder of their brother by Brantley, and by the same act, Mrs. Brantley would become a claimant for the $20,000 insurance money. The failure of the Howards to keep their appointment with Eskridge defeated the original purpose of the two conspirators and led them to adopt other schemes for the accomplishment of their purpose. They rearranged their plans and resolved to do the bloody deed themselves. By a preconcerted arrangement, Mrs. Brantley and Eskridge were to meet in Demopolis, a place about 27 miles distant from Selma, on the railroad running from that city to Meridian, Mississippi. Mrs. Brantley went by cars, while Eskridge rode through the country on his own horse, a handsome iron-gray thoroughbred, which he took for the purpose. The day before he left his home, he sent Mrs. Brantley a note written in the following words. My dearest one, I enclose you $25, which, I presume, is as much as you wish till I see you in Demopolis. Be prompt, my dearest one. God bless and protect you, my darling, till you join your devoted boy. End of section 49